Lord God, we are so thankful that we can gather together as your people and once again sit at your feet and you can feed us your word. I pray, Lord, as we look at the mighty themes of this creed which the church has stated, which is founded in your word, would come alive for each and every one of us in a new and refreshing way. I pray we think your thoughts, that my words would be yours, that you would stir our wills and bend them to your own, and you would take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, for it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, every fall after kickoff Sunday, we take some time and we start to walk through either a particular book or a particular theme in the scripture. Uh, And last week on kickoff Sunday, we looked through Peter's eyes, why the Bible has authority in our lives, why that's a good thing, and how that works out day by day. And moving on from that discussion, we're going to go into the Apostles' Creed, which is the basic outline of the Christian faith, and it's the oldest Christian creed. It it, it really began in the early, early second century, if you can believe it. It's that old, because... St. Irenaeus, the Bishop of Lyon of Gaul, which is in France, by the way, brought it together because the Roman Empire at that time had a vastly illiterate population. The, The church was spreading rapidly, and we needed a rule of faith, a standard by which to measure ourselves as opposed to the other competing worldviews. So he came up with this creed, and he paid for it with his life. And the reality is, by looking at this, it will help us to know the Lord more intimately, firm up this reality, and be able to share the good news, just like the early church did. Because that's exactly what happened in the early church. I want you to imagine you're at some Halloween party. You're dressed like Humphrey Bogart, you know? Uh, Bruno Mars. Pick, Pick your character. And you're sitting there, and you get in a conversation with one another about what you're talking about and, and about worldviews and what you believe and what have you. And they, they state what they believe spiritually. And I'm spiritual, but not religious. And you say, well, that's interesting. How have you reached that conclusion? And they waffle, as most people do waffle at that question. And you say, well, you know, I'd love to tell you what I believe. And they say, okay. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Drop that on them. I've done that at a Halloween party. And you know what the person said? I asked their permission. They said, wow, I never thought of it that way. That's our culture. And the early church from St. Irenaeus on used this. Okay, maybe you don't have the Romans Road memorized. Maybe you don't have, you know... Evangelism explosion memorized, or two ways to live, or ever any other silver bullet evangelistic, you know, express your faith program. But you know the Apostles' Creed. It's a way to share our faith, you know? And it's you who believe it. Why? It's based on the word. So that's what we're going to look at this fall. 
And today what we're going to do is recognize that as we begin to do this, all other worldviews literally are incoherent, inconsistent, and, uh, and not, not a very attractive, quite frankly. And yet, ours is. As we look at the first clause today, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And I could have chosen a lot of texts for this, but we've gone through creation before, and I wanted you to spare this, but I've never preached on this text before. So I encourage you to open up with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 3, and the calling of Moses. Because, you know, most people in our culture, they believe in God, however, they don't know him personally. Moses believed in God up to this time, but in this experience, he came to know him personally in the encounter of the burning bush. And what he discovered and what we discover is that God is real. God can be known. He's intensely personal. And why that matters, why that's a good thing. God is real. He can be known. He's intensely personal. And three, why it matters, why that's good. So let's look at this. First, God is a reality. Why do I start there? Because we live in the Cleveland metropolitan area, that's why. Because most of our neighbors, like all cities in the West, people have the right to construct their own religious views. They say, I don't like to think of God this way, I like to think of God as that way. The problem I have with that statement is that you treat the weather better than you treat God in that statement. Let's say it's February. Now, I can believe all I want that it's September and it's going to be sunny in 75 in February. And I can say it's sunny in 75 and wear shorts. The problem is, more than likely, it's 28 and snowing, right? I desperately want to believe that weather is going to be sunny in 75. But you know what you're going to do in February, just like you do in September or any other month of the year. You're going to check the weather, right? Because if you check the weather, you're going to deal with reality. And this text informs us it's time to deal with reality. Here's your reality. If there is at least a God, he's got to, at bare minimum, be like the weather worth checking on. And this text says that this God you can't tweak. You can't mold him in what you want him to be. You can't tame him. You can't domesticate him. You can't call yourself a follower of God and make him into you want him to be. He does that first by showing himself as fire. And it's not just like any fire. Verse 2 of chapter 3. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Though God is appearing to Moses as fire, it's not like any other fire. And it's unlike any fire that we've ever seen. Because fuel depends on fire. Or fire depends on fuel. When there's no more fuel, there's no more fire. But this fire is not dependent upon fuel. 
This fire is not dependent upon anything. We don't know anything in the world like this. And that's the point. And the other way the text gets that across is through the name. Verse 13, Then God said to Moses, and Moses said to God, excuse me, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of my fathers has sent me to you, and they ask of me, what is his name? What shall I say? In other words, you know, all these other gods around us have names. What is yours? Verse 14, God says those famous words, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The problem here is that in the Hebrew, God gives Moses the Hebrew verb to be. And therefore, the best way to translate this, although no translator would translate it like this because it's so awkward. He's saying, being itself has sent you to them. See, this fire is not dependent upon anything. It's self-existent. That fire, along with his name, is saying, the self-existent God who has no beginning and no end, who depends upon nothing, nothing caused me, I caused everything to be. I am. It's God's way of saying, I always am. It can never be said of God, I was. There never was a time it can never be said of God that I was. There never was a time where it could be said of God, He will be. God is saying, I not only have no ending, I always will, I am. But He also has no beginning, and He always was, am. And I am being itself, but it's not in a human sense. So no matter what you make of this, why it matters, and it's quite philosophical, I understand that. But they're God's words, not mine. <laughs> it's the most powerful, rational argument, my friends, for the existence of God that we have. And the argument goes like this. It's an abridged one, I grant you. Everything in the natural world is caused by something else. No natural being can bring on its own existence nor is there anything in the material world that will last forever. Therefore, the natural world must have a supernatural cause, a first uncaused cause. Otherwise, you have a miracle anyway. Richard Dawkins, that atheist philosopher, biology professor in Oxford, says, well, if God created the universe, what created God? Well, you're missing something, professor. Because if there is no God, then something came from nothing, and that in itself is a miracle. Look up the definition. It's a scientific impossibility. It's a miracle. Or you can say, life itself is a miracle because it is created by God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. Life is a miracle, and the Bible says it all comes from God. And the Father... Almighty creator of heaven and earth. And when you grasp this reality, look at his perfection, his holiness, his justice, his awesomeness. 
It's quite frankly recognizing that we are totally dependent upon Him. He's not dependent upon anything. It's very humbling and yet liberating at the same time. It's a, once we grasp this, especially for us suburban kind of people, you know, because you studied hard, didn't you, to get where you are. You worked hard. You went to college or trade school, whatever it was. You got a home with a mortgage, and that payment shows how hard you work. Everything you've done, you've done, pick you up by your own bootstraps, you think. But the reality is the desires you have, the talents you have, even the initiative you have, the giftedness you have, everything is a gift from God. And that's humbling. Yeah, you worked. God would acknowledge that. But he gave it to you in the first place. And if we're willing to go through the sting of that, and it is, right? It's just kind of stinging when you think about it. You'll find out how liberating life is. <laughs> you know, Philip Melanchthon was Martin Luther's closest confidant at the Reformation in Germany. And he was a great worrier. He was always worried about, what are we going to do here? What are we going to do here? Martin, not quite sure. And Luther constantly was telling him, oh, let Philip cease to rule the world. Nothing depends upon you, Philip, and nothing has. And this God is the awesome, holy, just creator God of the universe. But it's not just there. He's also, too, the God who can be known. He's intensely personal. He's not a f some kind of force. So secondly, he's, in he's intensely personal. And that's telling us that it's not enough just to know God. We need, uh, about God, we need to know God. How does this happen in Exodus 3? Through the fire. Because the fire is not only seen, the fire is also felt. It's experienced. Because we do know God intellectually, but we also experience Him through our hearts. Blaise Pascal, the great Christian philosopher, came to know Christ and he sewed his experience of God into the lining of his coat. So it was close to his heart for the remainder of his days. And after he died, they pulled it out. And this is what it says. The year of grace, 1654. Monday, November 23rd, from about half past ten at night until about half past midnight. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude. Feeling, joy, peace. Isn't that beautiful? One of the greatest Christian philosophers of all time. See, it's not just believing God. It's also meeting God, intensely personal, like Moses is here. Now, don't go looking for your own burning bush, by the way. You know, you can't create this. He didn't go looking for this bush. It just came to him. And it's intensely personal. And I know last week I said you can't follow your feelings. You remember that? And that's true. We've got to watch our feelings. But we all have different temperaments. Some people are highly emotional and others are cold as ice. 
But the reality is the Bible also does teach us in Psalm 34, 8 to taste and see that the Lord is good. In other words, you, you sense it in your heart, the reality of God. Because God is intensely personal. Matthew 6, Jesus is teaching his followers to pray. One of the first words that he teaches his followers to pray, as we had Bob read, our Father. That's who God is. He's our Heavenly Father. And I know maybe perhaps for some of you, because your earthly father was absent or abusive, that, that, that strikes hollow or negative to you, but this is your Heavenly Father, not your earthly father. Remember, he's loving and perfect and awesome. God is not like our earthly fathers. And although this God is, in the, in the Hebrew, he's gender neutral. But Jesus uses these words to express the character of God so that we can understand God. And only this worldview consists of a God who loves his people and seeks their good. What's God doing through Moses for his people? Taking them out of Egypt. 1 John 3, 1, that Carol read for us. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. John is not simply restating, he's simply restating the intensely personal nature of God throughout all of Scripture. Matthew 10, 30, Jesus says, he numbers the hairs on your head. They're getting fewer and fewer, but I got them. You know, and, and, and he numbers the hairs on your head, even as gray as they are. You are loved with an everlasting love, Jeremiah 31.3. Deuteronomy 33.27, and underneath are the everlasting arms, meaning that when you fall, God is there to catch you. He's trying to describe what it means to walk with God. And God, this God, gives us everything that we need. He's giving Moses what he needs right now in calling him to lead the people of Israel out. And Moses is scared to death. But it's only a selfish, unloving parent that gives you everything you want. As a former teacher, I know people like that. The kid never turns out well, by the way. Our God gives us what we need so we can pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Give us what we need. Is that, that's what the prayer is praying our daily provision. Oh, we can bring our desires to him, no question. But ultimately we will get what we need, and that's what we most need, is to know him, and to follow him. And even though he's the almighty creator of heaven and earth, we are called to this kind of knowledge of him, to know him. It's interesting that John continues the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Because a question emerges to this holy, awesome God who's intensely personal. Because the Bible teaches that flawed human beings cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. So here's the question. Here's a God who wants to meet Moses. And he is personal and compassionate. He, he says, Moses, I will go with you. He's seeking Moses. 
He's loving his people, Israel. Yet he also says, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. And Moses is terrified. So how can a holy God have a relationship with us? And so, You see, if you read Genesis 1, and you get all the way through it, and you start to read Exodus, and you get to chapter 3 of Exodus, this question emerges. Because you read through the mess of Noah, and the Tower of Babel, and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph and his brothers. This is a mess, right? So you get to Exodus 3, and the question becomes not, how is the burning bush not burned up? The question becomes, how is Moses not consumed? That's the question at this rate. And here's why this matters. Moses is not consumed because of an angel. You might have missed that. And you miss it in passing. Verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. That verse 2 is like a news article. You know, the first sentence in his news article is a summary sentence. And then you have the rest of the article explains that summary sentence. That's what's going on in verse 2. You know, because verse 2, the, the angel, the Lord, is speaking to Moses. And then the rest of the passage, the Lord was speaking to Moses from the bush. So here's the question, class. Was it the angel, the Lord, in the bush? Or was it the Lord in the bush? Yes. A dozen times in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord appears to someone, and he's like no other angel. He's an awesome appearing angel of the Lord, yet he's distinct from the Lord. You know, we remember the, the, the wonderful visitations by the angels, especially at Christmas time with Gabriel. Gabriel appears and speaks for the Lord to Zechariah. Then to Mary, this is radically different than that. In one sense, when the angel of the Lord speaks, it is the Lord himself. And yet, he's a distinct person from the Lord. It's very mysterious, and we Westerners got to put our Eastern hats on to really understand what's going on here. Alec Mater, great scholar of Exodus says, the angel of the Lord is the way God continually solves a problem. And that problem is, how can a rebellious person stand in the presence of absolute holiness? Moses says later in Exodus, show me your glory, Lord. We, we want you to come with us, O oh Lord. Please show us your glory. And God says, I can't. Moses, you're so rebellious. You're sinful. I can't. It will totally consume you and destroy you. But Moses says, I need you. We need you, Lord. In Exodus 32, God says, I'll solve this problem. I'll send my angel. Mater says, the angel of the Lord is a merciful accommodation of God whereby the Lord can present among, be present among a sinful people. Where if he were to go himself, his presence would consume them. 
The angel suffers no reduction of his full deity, yet he is that mode of deity whereby the holy God can keep company with sinners. Come with us, Lord. I can't. But I'll tell you what. I'll send the angel. It happens again, again, again in the Bible. We saw it in Genesis. Remember Hagar, Abraham, and Sarah? Sarah had this brilliant idea. Her, her ovaries are now dusty. She's 100. She ain't going to have a baby. So she goes to the young Hagar and says, all right, you know, you, have, you, you, you meet with Abraham, and, and we'll have a baby through him. I'm done. And from that point on, they all act horribly. Hagar has a baby, Ishmael. Later on, as she's filled with pride, looks at Sarah and says, You're old. I'm young and beautiful. I've got a son and you don't. Sarah goes, All right, that's fine. You got to go. Off you go. You're out of here. And she convinces cowardly Abraham to do it. So he, he gives her some spam and water and sends them out into the desert. In other words, you're going to die. And Abraham wrings his hands and he says, go. So they go out in the desert, Hagar and Ishmael, running out of water, dying of thirst, rejected by their provider, their father. She puts the baby under a bush and just walks away, you know, some, some distance. And she just can't stand to watch her son die. They're starving. And who appears in Genesis 16? The angel of the Lord. Hagar didn't deserve any help. The rest of the Abraham narrative, he didn't deserve any help either. Sarah didn't deserve any help. And yet... They all screwed up in self-centered, excusable, inexcusable ways. But the angel of the Lord shows up to Hagar and says, I will make this boy a great nation. I will save you and your son. So how can a rebellious people come into God's presence without being consumed? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking I'm going to say, this points to somebody, because I always do. I'm not going to do that, because this is somebody. Alec Mater says, there's only one other person who's identical with and yet distinct from the Lord. There's only one who, without abandoning his character, came to accommodate sinners. The angel of the Lord can only be understood as a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ himself. This is Jesus before he himself was born as a human being, speaking to Moses. Because it was he himself, centuries later, who would come and be born of a poor woman. And at the end of his life, he too would be rejected by his father. And as he cried out on the cross, it was taking the abandonment that Moses deserved and the people deserved. He got the punishment 
for the sins that we all deserve. But when you place your trust in this Jesus Christ, you can draw near to God. And not only that, God can indwell you with his beauty and his power and you not be consumed. You know, Jesus said in John chapter 5, before Abraham was, I am. You know, when someone tells you that Jesus never said he was God, just quote that, please. You will hear people say, well, Jesus never said he was God. Oh, yeah? Then why in John chapter 5 did they want to stone him? Because that's exactly what their response was. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him. They knew exactly what he was saying. Because when you say, I am, you're identifying with God. You're saying you are God. I'm the angel who is speaking to Moses from the burning bush. A great Christmas hymn called Shiloh for Christmas, written by William Billings. We don't sing it very often. It says these lines. The royal guest you entertain is not of common birth, but the second in the great I am, the God of heaven and earth. The royal guest you entertain is not of common birth, but the second in the great I am, the God of heaven and earth. Here's the second person of the Trinity. Here's God. So here we have it. I think the great message of this text is God works with the most unpromising material. God would say, I took that coward Abraham. I took that dysfunctional Isaac. I took that scheming Jacob. I took that stuttering, bumbling Moses and led a million people out of Egypt. I took that denying Peter and built my church upon his profession. What could he do with you? Through you. You believe in Jesus Christ? You're the burning bush right now. You might be a little itty bitty bush. You might be kind of a frail, big bush that's not burning very much, but that's okay. Because God, if his, through, through His Spirit, is burning with fire of His beauty and love in the center of your life, through you, you become something beautiful. Don't you want that? Well, that's the case I encourage you, and may I suggest that you do what Moses did. Go over and see. Let's pray. Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, you brought everything into existence. You are our maker and everything belongs to you. I ask that you would continually give us ears to give us eyes to see your beauty and ears to hear this marvelous truth that you have accommodated us, intervened for us in and through the person of Jesus Christ and you call us your children. Draw us closer into fellowship with you and help us like Moses to go over and see you in a new way like we never have this morning through the work of your son by your Holy Spirit. 
For we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.